welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. Sunday today, but I've been asked to talk about the cross. <laughs> Does this mean we're a week early? In actual fact, from the New Testament point of view, it's quite important that Palm Sunday comes before Good Friday. Because throughout his life and ministry, Jesus has been taking Israel's picture of reality and turning it upside down. And on Palm Sunday, Jesus uh, consciously acts out a prophetic parable. He does a prophetic act. He sends his disciples to find the cult of a donkey that's never been ridden. And he takes this outside the city and then he rides the donkey into the city. And by this stage, Jesus is quite famous. And lots of people are wondering whether he's the one. And the crowds gather round and they're cheering and screaming and throwing down their cloaks and cutting off palm branches and putting them down, they welcomed Jesus as the king. But the story that the New Testament tells, and the story that Mark and Matthew and Luke and John tells, is that the way Jesus ascends the throne is the cross. The enthronement of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, is his brutal execution on the cross. Because God is declaring time on the powers and on the world's view of power. And all through his ministry, Jesus has been making it clear that God's picture of power is the opposite of the world's picture of power. And that this is the message of the cross. So what I'm going to do today, quite ambitious, but we'll see how we go, is going to teach you 2 Corinthians. The whole book. The whole book. Is that okay? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. Only 13 chapters. Probably not. We'll be done well before lunch. It's only 11.06. Now what we call 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's fourth letter to the church of Corinth. Paul founded the church at Corinth probably in the uh, years AD or should I say CE, 55 and 56, 
Um, it's one of the fixed points in New Testament chronology and also one of the uh, bits of evidence that proves that Luke is an excellent uh, writer of history. Um, that he calls a dude in the uh, Corinthian church um, who is a Roman official by the right term. And this guy was only appointed for a two-year period. So we actually know exactly when Paul was in Corinth. And from, it's from that point that the rest of Paul's ministry tends to get uh, dated. Now Paul established the church and we think he spent about 18 months there. And then he moved on to Ephesus and he left behind a thriving multicultural community. But while he was in Ephesus, he received a letter from the Corinthians with a whole bunch of questions. And so in response to that, question, uh, that letter, he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians. Um, so that was probably written around about Pentecost, so in the spring of a, uh, 55 CE, answering their questions. And then not long after that, he received some news, probably some visitors from Corinth who'd gone across the Aegean to find him in Ephesus. So Corinth is in Greece. Um, Ephesus is across the um, Aegean in western, uh, western Turkey, or what we call Western Turkey today, sorry, Turkey. Um, they came to him saying that there was trouble in, in Corinthians, in Corinth, that some teachers had come who were bagging Paul and debunking his teaching and teaching stuff different to what Paul had said. They were challenging Paul's integrity, saying that he can't be relied upon, and they disputed his authority as a teacher, and they were claiming to be the ones who had the true authority because they had these letters from the apostles and the leaders of the church at church Jerusalem, um, which Jewish Christians thought of as the headquarters of the church. Now, Paul decided that a visit was in order, and he calls this his painful visit in 2 Corinthians. Um, the visit didn't go well, and so when he gets back to Ephesus, he writes them a second letter out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, he writes in 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 3 and 4. And the letter was taken by um, Paul's protege Titus uh, back to Corinth. And some scholars think that this letter, which Paul calls his severe letter, so he basically rips into the Corinthians in this, next, in, in this second letter. Um, and gets stuck into them um, about their behaviour. And so he wrote them a severe letter, which Titus took back. Um, now, there are some scholars who reckon that this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to 13, right? The last bit of 2 Corinthians. Um, I think they're wrong because there's absolutely no evidence that 2 Corinthians is not a single document. Um, so. But there is a noted change in tone at the start of chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians. Now, around about this time, Paul had to, had to run away from Ephesus 
because of the riot caused by the silversmiths. You remember in Acts uh, 19, um, Paul's teaching against idolatry it caused uh, such um, a stir in Ephesus that people were not going to the temples anymore and the, the Ephesian economy was on the brink of collapse because Ephesus depended on uh, the worship of idols, particularly um, the worship of Artemis, whose great temple sit on, sat on the big hill above Ephesus. <coughs> so Paul and a couple of his buddies had to run away from Ephesus um, to escape being beaten up or murdered. And so he went to the, the harbour town of Troas, hoping to catch up with Titus and hear how the letter had gone. But Titus didn't show up, so Paul moved north to Macedonia, probably to Philippi, where he finally bumped into Titus, and Titus brought good news that the severe letter had done the trick, that the Corinthians were sorry for the behaviour, and it's at this point that Paul writes to Corinthians um, to express his relief and his gratitude. Now, I suggest when you uh, get a chance over this next week that you go to the Bible Project and you watch, it'll take you about 10 minutes, Paul's, uh, sorry, the Bible Project's overview of 2 Corinthians. Because all I'm doing this morning is stealing yes, their work. <laughs> Because it's brilliant. <laughs> now, 2 Corinthians breaks up into three parts. The first seven chapters where Paul is reconciling with the Corinthians. He's written them a really severe letter that's really upset them. And Paul wants to reconcile them. Right? In Jesus' name, we rebuke the pain that's coming against Judy. Can I just get someone to... Put their hands on Judy. Right, we command the pain to stop. Right, we command that pain to go in Jesus' name. We rebuke the afflicting spirit. We command you to leave Judy alone. Pain go in Jesus' name. How are we doing, Jude? It's better, it's not quite Is it better, better, or is it just eased? Just eased. Okay, so Holy Spirit, we ask that you will come and complete that final 20% that you bring Judy's pain level down to zero. And we speak to whatever underlying conditions that are causing the pain and we command them to be healed in Jesus' name.
Okay. So, Paul begins 1 Corinthians with a prayer of thanksgiving directed to the God of all comfort, which would seem rather appropriate at this point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in the comfort too. Paul's opening prayer is also the beginning of his argument against the false teachers. The false teachers have come to Corinth and say, Paul uh, is a pretty unimpressive character. Look at him. He's in pain. He's poor. He doesn't speak very well. But look at us. We're wealthy. We've got these letters of recommendation from the, uh, some leaders in Jerusalem um, and you need to pay us money so that we can do ministry among you. Paul never asked for money. So we have a contrast of two ministry styles, one marked by suffering and tribulation and the other triumphant and uh, paid for. Paul challenges this by pointing them to Christ and to their own ministry, linking his sufferings to the suffering of Jesus and saying that his suffering um, is a reflection of the suffering of Jesus and that it enables God's grace to uh, be extended to the Corinthians. So he's contrasting his ministry with that of his opponents at Corinth. The point that he's making in the second half of, uh, well, this is sort of all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, is essentially that Christian leadership is not about status and success. That Christian leadership is about pointing people to Jesus and laying down our lives, enduring hardship and suffering if necessary, in order that God's grace might be extended to others. Now this is an important message for us as a little church at a time when we're struggling and have been struggling for a long time because it's very easy for us to get discouraged and for the whispers of these successful Christians, these Christians who are marked by wealth, status and success, And to buy into that value system. See, the problem that Paul highlights at Corinth is that they have distorted values. They are valuing the wrong thing. They are valuing the things that Jesus came against, not the things that Jesus came to bring. They also wanted Paul to prove his credentials. Right, the Corinthians, under the influence of this group of flashy leaders who came with letters of recommendation, have been saying to Paul, 
What are your credentials? You're not a very impressive person, so how can you be an apostle of God? Paul responds to them in a very clever way um, at the start of chapter 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul here is referencing the New Covenant, and in particular, the fantastic New Covenant passages of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where the Spirit is poured out and people's hearts are transformed, God promises to take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh to write his laws on our heart. Paul says that you Corinthians are our letter of recommendation because we are new covenant people and the evidence that we are new covenant people is that the Spirit has been poured out among us and we're meant to have been transformed. And he goes on in chapter 3 and chapter 4 to contrast the old covenant and the new covenant. And he says in, in verse 7 of chapter 3, Now if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone, he's talking about the tablets of stone that Moses brought down the, um, from the mountain that God had inscribed the commandments on it. If... If the ministry of death came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Paul's saying that the old covenant, uh, which God made with Israel, with Moses as the media, uh, mediator, if that came with so much glory that they couldn't even see it Moses' face because he'd been in the presence of God, so he had to put a veil over his face so that they could look at him, if that's the glory that comes with the old covenant that can't get the job done, how much more glory will come with the new covenant? The new covenant is between God and the church. And it's not mediated by Moses. It's mediated by the man Jesus and by the Spirit who was sent by the Father and the Son to dwell among the people of God. The new covenant, sorry, the old covenant was glorious but fading. And it was ineffective. The new covenant is glorious and eternal. And the new covenant is transformational. It's meant to be life-changing. But apparently for the Corinthians, this hasn't happened because of the way they have behaved. He then goes in chapters 4 to 7 to talk about the paradox of the cross. 
The cross turns the values of the world on their head. Money, wealth, power, success. These are the things that the world tells us are the marks of, um, of success. These are the things that we should strive for. These are the things that we should judge one another by. What's the successful look, life look like? Well, you've got a big house. You've got all the gadgets to put in the big house. You drive a nice car. You've got a great income. Um, you've got a shiny wife and kids, if you're a bloke. Um, you've got power and influence and prestige. And these values affect the church. <laughs> to say that when we think about what does a successful church look like, Often that's the picture in the back of our mind. So that when we look at ourselves and we think, this is pretty pathetic, really. 20 people? Only one or two look impressive? Oh, I won't tell you who. <laughs> Maybe none of us look impressive. Right? Look at, look at the way we dress. Right, that's always one of the big criticisms of the vineyard. We're so relaxed and slovenly, although I'd call it comfortable. See, what do we think of as success? What is our picture? What is the picture of a successful community? Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be happy with where we are as a, as a little group. We've got a lot of work to do if we are to fulfil the calling that God has placed on us. Yeah. What I'm challenging is the picture that we have when we think about what success will look like. Will it look like a big building full of shiny people giving lots of money so that the pastor can ride a Harley and have um, a $100,000 watch on his wrist? I'm not sure if that's something that Glenn's aspiring to. Good enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is my surname. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, look. <coughs> Paul says the Corinthians have got everything wrong because they have not understood the cross. The paradox of the cross is that Jesus was exalted through suffering and death. His victory came through laying down his life and we follow him. We are called to conform our lives to the pattern of his life and you will find this everywhere in Paul's, Paul's letters. Not just in 2 Corinthians, it's all over the place. This idea that we are meant to conform our lives to the cross. That we are meant to live a cruciform life. That is a cross-shaped life. That the cross and what it represents is a picture for us of what life should look like. The cross reveals God's salvation. Right? Jesus died for our sin in fulfilment and to establish the new covenant. So perhaps the most famous verse in 2 Corinthians is verse 17 of chapter 5, where Paul says, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross reveals not only God's salvation, but also God's character, his self-giving love. And it makes an appeal to us to take on a cruciform way of life, imitating the cross in the way in which we live out our lives and our relationships. We are called to learn to walk the way of the cross, what's called in Latin the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. learning to live a cross-shaped life, which Jesus often referred to. And in Matthew 16, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The proof that Paul authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus, and that the super leaders don't, is seen in humility poverty and suffering. These are the things that mark the cruciform life. And this is where the Corinthians have got everything wrong. And so this brings Paul to the central part of the letter in chapters 8 and 9 where he gets to the business bit. He's made uh, his gratitude known and he's reaching out to reconcile to the Corinthians and appealing to them. But now he's got something to ask of them. Now there was a famine in Judea and as a result the church at Jerusalem was in desperate need. Now some scholars wonder whether this is because in Acts 4 the first Christ, sorry, in Acts 2, the first Christians um, pooled all of their property and lived a very generous, um, open-handed life. They wonder whether, as a consequence of that, 15 years later, the church at Jerusalem is now poor because they've sold up all their property. I don't know whether that's true or not. But in, in any case, the, the Christians at Jerusalem called themselves the poor. Um, and Paul decided that because there was friction between him and the Jewish leaders in, in uh, Jerusalem, that he would take up an offering 
from the churches that he had started. So he had gone around and visited all of his churches and asked them to raise money every Sunday um, to make a collection that could be sent to the Christians at Jerusalem as a thanksgiving offering to relieve their suffering. Now you can read about this in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16 because both of those letters, part of the reason for writing those letters is to get them to collect money for this collection. And we see in Acts, uh, in Acts uh, 19 or 20, I think, when Paul is on his uh, um, trip to Jerusalem, there's a whole bunch of people with him. right? Maybe as many as 20 people travelling with Paul, and Luke doesn't tell us why they're there. But from Luke reading his letters, it's likely that each church that collected money sent one or two representatives from that church to carry and guard the money and make sure it gets there. And so there's representatives from Philippi, from the churches in Galatia, um, from eventually the church in Corinth, from the church in Ephesus. All of these churches that Paul had established um, collected money and sent this to Jerusalem, but at this point, the Corinthians haven't. Even though the church at Corinth is probably the wealthiest New Testament church, um, reflecting the wealth of the city, they haven't bothered to collect any money. And so in chapters 8 and 9, Paul appeals um, to them and says, the fact that you haven't raised any money, you haven't done what I asked you, is evidence that you have not yet had your life transformed the way you're supposed to be transformed under the new covenant. God's given us his spirit. The spirit is the one who changes us to make us more like Jesus. And that means that if anything, when we become a Christian, we should become more generous. Now, this is an awkward thing for me to say because I'm a five. And if you know anything about the uh, Enneagram, you know that one of the defining characteristics of fives is that they are really stingy. <laughs> my natural inclination is to not give. Right? My natural inc inclination is to hold on to stuff out of fear that I won't have enough. And so the gospel message is a clear challenge to me, personally, as is the wife that I married, who is incredibly generous. Um, but for me, I'm a bit like the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are important for me. Paul says, For you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you may become rich. To be a Christian is to become more generous. Generosity is a mark of a life that's been transformed by God's generous grace. And the church is meant to be a display community of God's kindness and generosity. Paul Wright uh, uh, winds up this section by pointing to Jesus 
who had honour and wealth in heaven, but gave that up, laid down his life, and died the death of a slave. So from being king in heaven, he became a poor person in an unimportant uh, Roman province, got executed um, with the death of a slave, in order that sin and poverty could be dealt with and the richness of God's grace could be released to the Corinthians. If that's the case, you guys should collect some money and contribute to the gift that I'm sending to Jerusalem. And this brings us to the final chapter where there is a sharp change in tone And Paul gets quite cranky. And so the last four chapters of uh, 2 Corinthians, some scholars have said this must be a different letter, maybe the severe letter, although there's no evidence for that. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, So he's quoting there one of the complaints or accusations made against you. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show you uh, boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of you who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul goes on to rip into the Corinthians for getting sucked in by what he calls the false apostles the super-apostles or the pseudo-apostles. And in this last section, Paul contrasts his ministry of suffering and laying down his life, the way of the cross, with the ministry of the super-apostles. The super-apostles are self-proclaimed Bible experts. They claim to have a knowledge of Jesus and they asked for money in order to do their ministry. Paul, on the other hand, was a Pharisee, which means that he knew the uh, Torah, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, off by heart. He had been commissioned, not by leaders in Jerusalem, but by the risen Jesus himself. And then he tells us in chapter 12 that he had this incredible vision where he got caught up into the third heaven, into God's throne room. And he saw things that were so incredible that he's never told anybody about it. He's given his whole life to the mission of Jesus and he never asked for money. Paul was a tent maker and when he went to a place to establish a church, he paid his own way by working um, as a tradesman. Paul contrasts this And then after laying down all of the things that he could boast about if he was wanting to come up against the super apostles, he says, in actual fact, none of this matters. Instead, he says in chapter 11, verse 30, I will boast about my weakness. And he then goes on to list all of the troubles that he's experienced as he's gone about preaching Jesus around the world. And we read in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 11 a whole bunch of things that Luke doesn't record. Times where Paul had 
are some pretty hair-raising experiences that we know nothing about except that he mentions them in passing here. But to sum up his argument, he says, none of this matters because the point of my vision is that God spoke and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The point that Paul makes is that his suffering, and in this case some sort of a physical um, ailment that he suffers from, we don't really know what it was, um, that God didn't heal him from. Paul says, this is a source of God's grace in my life. And because God pours his grace into this, I have grace to give away to others. In the final chapter, Paul gives the Corinthians a sober warning, which we could sum up in words, wake up to yourselves. Two Corinthians presents us with the paradox of the cross in a way that challenges our values. What does success mean in your life? What does success look like for us as a struggling little church in Cabramatta? God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And our weakness makes room for God's grace to shine through. In chapter 4, four Paul talks about us having treasure in, in jars of clay so that the surpassing greatness belongs to God and not to us. The idea is that God chooses the foolish and the weak things in order that his power and greatness is displayed and we don't get too full of ourselves. The paradox of the cross also transforms us through the spirit. The cruciform way of life modelled to us by Jesus and also by Paul is meant to become our own way of life. In another letter, an earlier letter, Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I don't know that I can yet say that I could pray that prayer. But this is what we're called to. Father God, please forgive us when we get 
seduced by the attraction of the trappings of success. When we pursue money and wealth and power and influence, rather than laying down our lives and following your son, We invite your spirit to be at work in changing our hearts and helping us to take on the values of the cross and to walk the way of the cross as we follow Jesus. And we ask you to help us to see what this looks like today and tomorrow. together in groups and pray for one another for the new covenant ministry of Jesus to be more